Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting on the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go to the Ave Maria CD archives and pull on a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting on the Mind of Christ. There are many views of the world and what's happening in it. As the world seems to be almost crashing in, European countries have overspent their abilities to continue to function. The U.S. HHS mandate restricts our religious freedoms, even though a self-professed Catholic vice presidential candidate says it doesn't. As committed Christians and citizens, we all have or should have our own personal worldviews. But is there a single Christian worldview? Can there really be one? What is the Catholic worldview? What can we, the Catholic faithful, do to enhance the Catholic worldview? Of course, the King Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, started an adult education series to help us in developing a proper Catholic worldview. It's based on scripture, tradition, natural law, and our own developing consciences. On this edition, the Mayflower Compact, the U.S. Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are also included. This series is actually an outgrowth of a roundtable discussion called by parish DRE Professor Barbara Morgan. The sessions are held in the parish center between the two Sunday morning masses. The speakers have been local experts and guests brought in to discuss a worldview topic. Our speaker on this program is Christ the King Pastor, Father Ed Friede. Our second speaker on this program is EWTN's Father John Tregilio, who spoke at the 2012 Detroit Hall of Holiness Conference on Responsible Citizenship and Voting as a Catholic. Stay with us. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer. Our first speaker on this program is Father Ed Friede. Father Ed has been the pastor of Christ the King Parish since 1997. Christ the King is a personal parish of the Diocese of Lansing. Its identity is taken from the charismatic spirituality of its members, some of whom have been longtime leaders in the charismatic renewal around the world. Father Red has earned three bachelor's degrees, two masters, is a licentiate in sacred theology, and is working on his doctorate in scripture. He is a member of the adjunct faculty of Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit and of Siena Heights University. 
He serves on a number of boards and is a member of numerous ecclesial and secular associations, including the Equestrian Order, the Most Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, where he served as priest knight commander. For this session, Father Red centered his talk on the restriction of our religious freedom, but he did this under the spotlight of American history. He used secular documents to help make his points. These documents included the Mayflower Compact, the Articles of Confederation, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and other documents from the time of the establishment of the United States. He talked about slavery, blue laws, the validity of unjust laws, St. Thomas Aquinas, reason and revelation, and a whole lot more. Here is Father Ed Freedy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here and the love you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for raising up this country where we can be Christians and live in a free democracy. We ask you, Lord, to continue to fill us with your grace and your love. Bless our talk. Bless our time together today. We ask us, Jesus, in your most precious name. Amen. Amen. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The debate about how to run a country, what the political state should look like is among the most ancient debates in our collective human history. And opinions vary. For example, the two great protagonists of particular approaches were Plato and Aristotle. Plato reasoning that the best governor of the state would be the wise, dispassionate philosopher king who was filled with wisdom and could rule well. And Aristotle's approach kind of being like, well, that'd be a great idea, show me one. So the idea of the state is something that we've been wrestling with for a long time. And it's one in which we don't look at as simply a consequence of the fall. You know, some traditions look at it that way. We wouldn't need to have a state if we hadn't fallen. But the idea that people can just kind of like self-govern in little family units and hopefully get along well together is particularly not applicable after the fact of the fall. The difference is, though, in terms of like how you look at us, how you look at humanity, and this is where there's been a fundamental shift in philosophy. Aristotle taught that the natural state of relationship between people is friendship, that we are hardwired for friendship, that we've essentially been made as social beings and that friendship should really be the foundation of why we do what we do. It's a fundamental component when we think about the idea of the common good, that we love each other. We want the common good to be functional. After Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas' philosophy got dislocated by Descartes and Kant and the rest of the quote-unquote moderns, a very different approach was taken, that much more of Hobbes. Hobbes' approach is the natural state of relationships is war. And the most you can hope to do is have effective treaties with people around you so they don't kill you. But you can see how that approach leads to a very, very different concept of society and how things should function. If you base it on friendship, self-sacrifice, and the common good on the one side versus you base it on war, and what I should hope for is the protection of my rights, it's all about me, on the other We see that kind of conflict continuing to sort of express itself even politically in the country today. Thomas Aquinas builds on Aristotle and, of course, adds the fundamentally Christian dimension. It has to do with law. Now, law is not particularly popular since the 60s. There was this kind of 
antinomian, anti-legal revolution that happened that basically you look at all laws bad, all laws evil, we shouldn't have law. We should just be free to do what we want. And Aquinas, of course, would maintain that law, in fact, is a gift, which is much more consistent with actually which the Jewish perspective. The Jews are about to celebrate Simchat Torah, the great rejoicing in the law, feast day that they have, where they take the Torah and they will dance it around the synagogue and it will be a serious party as they celebrate this gift because they recognize that first and foremost, the function of the law is to show us how to live. We're not just kind of random creatures that should just live any way we want. That we've been created with a particular intent and if we're going to fulfill our destiny, we need to know what it is and how to get there. And for that, God gives us what we need. So Thomas Aquinas talks about the four kinds of law, and the first one he mentions is simply what he describes as the eternal law. The eternal law is the law by which God governs the universe. It's like God's plan for everything. It includes everything from morality to quantum mechanics, how the universe is run in the mind of God. That's the eternal law. That's the fundamental foundation for everything else. Concerning the eternal law, some of it can be known by the use of reason alone. That's what we call the natural law. Human beings reflecting on their experience, reflecting on what they observe around them, reflecting on who they are, can derive what we call the natural law. And that's kind of perfectly well demonstrated by the fact that the commandments of the second tablet of the law, in other words, 4 to 10, are pretty much consistently found in every legal code in every society that has ever existed. That you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't commit adultery. That these things are kind of built in. Everybody sort of intuitively understands that this is necessary, that this is right. And the natural law is a kind of a pervasive sense throughout the whole world. Though there might be permutations from time to time about how things are looked at, the bottom line is that Everybody has a sort of general sense of what's right, the natural law. Unfortunately, today, you know, the kind of reasoning and understanding that goes into really being able to develop a natural law argument, most people don't get logic in school. Almost nobody gets any kind of philosophy. And so the natural law, which is, of course, one of the strongest arguments to use in terms of the pro-life issue. The natural law argument against abortion is really clear. But if nobody knows the natural law, then it might as well be defending pro-life in Swahili for all the good it's going to do. So first we need to upgrade our educational system so people can actually understand logic and philosophy and get some of that. It would be a good idea. But anyway, so you have the natural law is the second law you could look at. And it's what we can know of the eternal law based on reason alone. But of course we know that the king of kings does not leave us to what we can simply know by reason alone. The divine law is a part of the eternal law that we can know because God himself chooses to reveal it. Thomas Aquinas divides the divine law into the divine Old Testament law, the divine New Testament law. But generally it's looked at, okay, there's one divine law, and that's what we can know from Revelation. And the distinction there would be that the commandments of the first tablet of the law can only be known by Revelation. That God should be the center and that you should have no gods before him is something that you can derive from reason, but that's not what the first commandment says. It doesn't say, I am the Lord. It says, I am Yahweh. The God that they are following is given a personal name. It's not just some generic God. It's not just the God whose existence you can reason to logically. It's the Holy One of Israel himself who has revealed, this is my name. I am Yahweh. 
Of course, you could never know who he is unless he had chosen to reveal himself. That his name should be kept holy, you could probably reason to the idea that if there is a God, then you should treat his name with respect, but you could never know that Yahweh is his name or that Jesus is a holy name now that we would revere. So it's only by revelation that you can know that. That, it might be a good idea to take a day off every week. You could probably reason to. You could never reason to the conclusion that the Lord's Day is Sunday, especially given the fundamental shift of the Sabbath being sunset Friday to sunset Saturday to the Lord's Day being sunset Saturday to midnight Sunday. That takes revelation to get there. So the commandments of the first tablet are clearly the divine law being practically demonstrated for us. So you have the eternal law by which God governs the universe. What you can know of it by reason is a natural law. What we know of it by revelation is a divine law. And then comes the tricky one, human law. Human law, in its best case scenario, is meant to be kind of the practical application of the natural law and the divine law to the particulars of human society. For example, we know that you shouldn't drive in a way that endangers people. But... Nowhere does it say that thou shalt not transgress 70 miles an hour on the interstate. So those kinds of practical instances that are then placed before us for the, as Thomas would say, for the good ordering of society. They are necessary if we're going to be able to relate to each other in a healthy way and just in terms of the practical infrastructure. When you look at how we form a society then clearly dimensions of the natural law and dimensions of the divine law are both present. And when you look at the United States in particular, and you see that fundamental teachings that could only be known by the divine law were built into the criminal code of the United States from the very beginning, then you can understand that we never limited the morality that the country was based on to what you can know by reason. Every single state had laws on the books that says you can't be open on Sunday, the so-called blue laws. Well, that's clearly not an ethical position. It's a moral position. And the distinction there, again, is ethics are the right behavior that you know from reason. Morals are the right behavior that you know based on revelation. Obviously, they overlap. And unfortunately, in public discourse, ethics and morals are used kind of interchangeably. Even the dictionary defines them in terms of each other, so that's not really useful. But from the Catholic perspective, from the philosophical perspective, that's usually the distinction we make. Ethics are known by reason, morals are revealed. But the Founding Fathers clearly understood that the morals of the divine law, it was okay to build that into the very criminal code before the states came together by which the individual colonies were governed. Because they came with a particular intent, with a particular purpose. Thomas defines law as a rule and measure of acts whereby a man is either induced to act or refrain from acting. Now, the rule and measure of human acts is the reason which is first principle of human acts, since it belongs to our reason to direct our ends. The law is something pertaining to reason. Concerning that, he says, the law is a dictate of practical reason emanating from the ruler who governs the community. And by analogy, the universe itself is a community with its own ruler, God himself. God himself, in a sense, issues the eternal law. So we participate in this by learning who we are, by learning what we are supposed to do, 
by studying the divine law and by studying natural law, because natural law can, again, help us to understand if we fully use our reason. Now, you know, there's a certain sense in which it's never the case that we learn something by reason alone, because it's never the case that we are not in an environment that is completely suffused by grace. Like you have this big kind of philosophical discussion. Is it possible to use reason alone to come to the conclusion that God exists? Well, it's possible, but you're never in an environment in which there's only reason. Because every human being is constantly being graced to take a step closer to God. So in a certain way, when you talk about coming to know God through reason alone, you're describing an environment that cannot exist because there's no place where you can go where there's only reason and no grace. Because God is always constantly calling everyone to come to know him, to experience his love, to experience his grace. The priority of the laws, of course, is the eternal law, the divine law, the natural law, the human law. So if you're trying to discern whether a specific human law should be followed or not, then the question is, does it contravene either the natural law or the divine law? And to the extent that it contravenes anything else, then it is an unjust law, and an unjust law does not need to be followed. Sometimes under circumstances, even just laws can be ignored if there is a higher law priority. There's nothing unjust about the speed limit signs, about the speed laws. But if your wife's water just broke and she's sitting in the seat next to you, traveling at 55 miles an hour to the hospital isn't necessarily the prudential judgment you want to make. There are times when, okay, we're going to override that now, you know. And the church has a word for this, epikaia, which is the virtue of knowing when the law does not apply so that we can know. There are certain times when, okay, we need to follow this law, but here we got some wiggle room. And so what is the appropriate response? And we're not talking about creative rationalization. We're talking about what is a legitimate way to look at this law and to say, in this case, it does not apply. Now, the church, of course, teaches that there are certain laws for which no violation is ever appropriate. Fundamental teachings of the divine law. Fundamental teachings of the natural law, for example, with respect to the unborn. A direct abortion is always a grave wrong. There are no exceptions to that. Blasphemy, sacrilege. I mean, there's a set of things where you can't conceive of a situation in which doing this would be legitimate. So we need to understand the more we know the divine law and its characteristics, the more we understand what's liable to have an exception and what's not so that we can then be faithful. So Thomas Aquinas invites us to understand, to know the law so well that we know when is it appropriate to, in a sense, violate it. And you see what happens when people say simply, well, the law is the law, end of discussion. I only did what I was commanded. We call that the Nuremberg Principle. And the conclusion of the Second World War made it perfectly clear that it doesn't matter if something is legal, if it's patently unjust, you are still morally responsible for not following it. And if you follow a patently unjust law, you can be prosecuted for it. Every one of the Nazis that went to trial in Nuremberg used as their defense, I was just following orders and everything we did was legal. And it was legal. The German parliament had passed all of the final solution laws. Everything was done by vote, etc., etc. Hitler was elected, you know, etc. 
So they could say it was all done legally, it was all done ethically, it was all above board, it was all gravely immoral. And the guys were all convicted. Convicted because people said there needs to be a higher law that dictates human response. And you should have known that. And you ignored that. And so they were convicted. The Nuremberg Principle cannot be appealed to. I was just following orders. I'm taking a couple classes at the University of Michigan right now. And one of my classes is, it's all ROTC students and me. And um, (laughs) learned how to salute last week. And they're told the same thing, that you are responsible and required to follow every order that is legal and moral. Now, obviously, it's a much trickier situation for soldiers to have to discern what is not a legal order. But one of the situations in which that, of course, just came up was when the army chief of chaplain ordered all the army chaplains not to read the letter that Archbishop Brolio had written concerning the HHS mandate. Archbishop Brolio is the commander of all the chaplains of all the branches of the service as the Archbishop of the Military Ordinariate. And he ordered read in every chapel, every military base, this letter that he wrote, which basically said that the HHS mandate is illegal and is contrary to Catholic Church teaching. And the Army Chief of Chaplains ordered them not to do it, put all the chaplains in this horrendous place where they had a conflict between their respective chains of command because they're under both of those guys. And a whole set of the chaplains just blew off the army chaplain and read it anyway because they saw it as a moral responsibility. So you have those kind of situations coming up. It's a situation that all the chaplains are facing right now in terms of if President Obama is reelected, the likelihood is that the chaplains will be required to do homosexual marriages. That's a pretty much of a guarantee. And then what will the chaplains do? It's not helping recruiting chaplains right now when they're facing issues like that. But you can see what happens when you completely divorce yourself from the natural law and from the divine law and start manufacturing human law that has no basis in reality, except in like personal preference, because that's essentially what's happening in a set of these situations. Once you separate yourself from reason and from revelation, then it's just a crapshoot. What's going to be legal tomorrow? Who knows? which is why those who understand that the country was founded on a clear anticipation of divine law. Take a minute to take a look at, for example, the Mayflower Compact. Now, the Mayflower Compact is a very interesting document because it's not written as a theological statement of faith. The intent of the Mayflower Compact is to provide for how do we govern the body politic? How are we going to do this? Apparently, you know, the Mayflower was supposed to be landing in a different colony, like in Virginia, where they were going to be part of that colony. Because of a storm, they got blown off course, and now they're landing in what's eventually going to be part of Massachusetts. And because they landed there, instead of where they were expecting to go, they landed in a place where they were now free to create their own colony and were not bound by the laws of the colony to which they'd actually been heading. It's a little bit like, you know, Columbus trying to find China and ends up in the Caribbean. They land there, but then they really saw that as a pure act of God. Because then they realized, okay, since we're not bound by any of these other anticipations, now we can make a decision. What is our colony life going to look like? And so they wrote the Mayflower Compact, which is a way of kind of specifying, here's how we are going to live. What does it begin? In the name of God, amen. Subtle. I like that. (laughs) 
Now remember, this was in 1620. There was no discussion of an American Revolution at this point in time. Then the colonies were British colonies, and as far as everyone was concerned, you know, in order to found a colony, you got a charter, a mandate from the British crown, etc. This wasn't an issue yet because the subsequent difficulties, it would be much more the case in the next century, hadn't arisen. So, we whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign lord, King James, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., And they describe why are they doing what they're doing. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in this parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof to enact, constitute and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. Short and sweet, but the point is really clear. Why is this? So that we can form a secularist state? So that we can become skeptics? No. The purpose is for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Now, if you look at the fundamental rationale for many of the colonies, you see that a whole lot of the colonies were founded specifically by groups of people that were fighting to escape religious persecution. It wasn't that they wanted to start a secular establishment. Their whole purpose was we want to go somewhere where we have the freedom we need to do the religion that we believe is true. And of course, for all of them, it was Christianity. We want to be able to go where we can be Christians without interference and not necessarily be Anglicans or be whatever. And so there was a particular flavor to most of the colonies. But the clear intent was we're Christians and we want to found Christian colonies. In particular, we want to be able to be Puritans. We want to be able to be Catholic. We want to be able to be whatever it is we feel called to be. And so it's for the advancement of the Christian faith. That's kind of the point. Governor John Winthrop, who was governor of the Massachusetts colony, writes a letter to the colony. It's called Christian Charity, a model hereof. And the whole letter that he writes is a description just packed with scripture about here's what it means to be a Christian, here's how we... Now remember, this is coming from the governor. This is not coming from the chaplain or from some minister. It's coming from the governor of the colony. And he's going on in great detail to describe how we're supposed to live. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. When ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies. When he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, may the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city set upon a hill. The whole point, a Christian country, a Christian colony. So people can look and say, wow, we want to be like New England. Why? Because God has so blessed it, because we have been so faithful to him that we can now be this wondrous gift. This colony of Connecticut, when it was being founded, issued in January 14, 1639, what's called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. For as much as it has pleased Almighty God, by the wise disposition of his divine providence, 
so to order and dispose of things that we, the inhabitants and residents of Windsor, Hartford, and Weatherford, are now dwelling in and upon this river and the lands adjoining, and well knowing where a people are gathered together, the word of God requires that to maintain the peace and union of such a people, there should be an orderly and decent government established according to God to order and dispose of the affairs of the people at all seasons as occasion shall require. We do therefore associate and conjoin ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth and do for ourselves and our successors and such as shall be adjoined to us any time hereafter. We enter into combination and confederation together. Why? To maintain and preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we now profess. The discipline of the church, which according to the truth of said gospel, is now practiced among us. Then they go on to talk about practical things, like it is now ordered that there should be two general assemblies of the courts, the one in the second Thursday of April, etc., etc. But again, these are not theological statements being written by ministers. This is the formal act of what is going to be kind of the nascent legislature of what will become the state of Connecticut. And what does it say? to preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. No ambiguity here. In the colony of Virginia, a declaration of rights was made. A declaration of rights made by the representatives of the good people of Virginia, assembled in full and free convention, which rights do pertain to them and their posterity as the basis and foundation of government. In paragraph 16 of that, it says, religion... And then they define religion. How do you define religion? The duty which we owe to our creator and the manner of discharging it. Now, this sounds like it's going to be simply a statement of the appropriateness of freedom of religion without being particularly specific. They say that religion or the duty which we owe to our creator and the manner of discharging it can be directed by reason and conviction. In other words, by reason and faith, not by force or violence, and therefore All men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. But dictates of conscience essentially would mean that whatever you feel is appropriate according to your conscience, you can do. And so they say that. But then the next sentence says, and that it is a mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance and love. So you are free in conscience to do whatever you want as long as it includes practicing Christian love. So... It's not particularly ambiguous when you throw in the C word there. So when they're looking at Virginia and the Declaration of Rights in Virginia, they clearly perceive that basically what that essentially says is any kind of Christian you want to be, you can be, as long as it's Christian. Okay. It is a mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity toward each other. So you have Virginia going that way. You have Massachusetts going that way. You have Connecticut going that way. And then if we take a minute and we look at the declaration itself, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. It's very interesting. When you read this and you read the Constitution, the United States is always treated as a plural noun. The United States are. Because as this was being written, the clear sense was that the primary governments were the governments of the 13 colonies, that they were coming together in this confederation But even the way the declaration starts and is described as the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, United is not capitalized, but states is. 
because it is not yet the sense of the United States. It's the United States. When in the course of human events, how many of you had to memorize this in grade school? Yeah, public school, had to memorize, hello, tell your Catholic schools, get on to this, you know. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which, quote, the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the causes which impel them to that separation. Notice here, this is a wonderful way of kind of distinguishing between divine law and natural law in the same sentence. The laws of nature, which would be those laws that you can derive by reason alone, and of nature's God, which are those laws that God himself particularly reveals to you. So we have a responsibility, if we are going to live according to these laws, to explain to everyone else why we're doing this. You don't just break the bonds that you have with some other country without demonstrating that there's a basis for it. Because the presumption is that being in a greater political union, for example, between the colonies and the United Kingdom, that that would be a good thing. And if you're going to break it, you need to be able to demonstrate to the powers of the earth, the other countries, why it is that you're doing this. But they make it perfectly clear that being a separate and equal nation is something that the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. If it's necessary for the sake of the exercise of the rights of your people, then you have the right to do this, and it's a good thing. And then, of course, what follows is described as one of the best-known sentences in the English language. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is a theological position, in a sense, to proclaim that we're created. That's the bottom line. Because what you do as soon as you talk about creation, then you immediately introduce the creator into the equation, which, of course, they then go on to say, because they understand where do rights come from, you know. If we understand the eternal law is the fundamental basis for everything, that the natural law is what we can derive from the eternal law by reason and the divine law is what is revealed, if we're looking at where rights come from, see, because there is a kind of an attitude that rights come from the law, that when you have the law, the law gives you rights. Rather, you know, the perspective of the Declaration and actually the perspective of the Constitution is that rights come from the Creator and that the law is meant to reflect pre-existing rights. The law does not grant you rights. The law codifies rights that you are granted by the creator himself. So it's not like we don't have any rights until the law reflects them. We have the rights simply in virtue of the fact that we have a creator who endows us with those. And when they, particularly interesting word, unalienable, depending on which document you're reading, is also sometimes spelled inalienable, but the bottom line is that it means the same thing. What does it mean? It means that these rights cannot be separated from you. You cannot be alienated from the rights that are yours because they are given to you by the Creator. That these rights are intrinsic to the nature of the universe itself because they reflect the divine law, the eternal law, the natural law. God himself 
ordered the universe in a particular way. And the way that the universe is oriented, the way it's ordered to make human beings what human beings are, necessarily means that there's a set of rights that are proper to us. And that those rights cannot be taken away by any power. Those rights are intrinsic to us. They cannot be alienated. And that the whole purpose of government is, as the Declaration says, to secure these rights. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The government does not empower us. We empower the government. You can see in some approaches being taken by particular parties at this point, this is completely reversed. The idea that the government is where the power right. Well, this was perfectly reflected in the constitution of the Soviet Union, if you've ever read their constitution. There are no rights in the Soviet Union except the rights that are proper to the state. And even if you kind of gave lip service to some idea of human rights, the bottom line was that only the state itself had rights because only the state itself had the right to exist. No one else had the right to exist. And the only rights that any human being had the right to exercise were the rights that the state said are yours. The government determines who the rights are. The government is what empowers the people. The founding fathers were completely reversed in their sense of this. The founding fathers made it perfectly clear that it's within the people that the rights are present because they were given the rights precisely by the creator himself. Rights that cannot be removed. And so when you found a government, the government itself empowered by the people is then responsible for making sure that these rights which were given by the creator and not by the government are then able to be exercised by the people. And of course, (laughs) the interesting line that follows, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, which is precisely why they're able to separate themselves from Great Britain. Because what the British are doing is contrary to the free exercise of the rights of the American people that were they were given by God. And so now it's our right to establish a new government, a government that we are empowering because the only place the power for the government can derive is what the people themselves give. It is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, again, small u, capital S, United States, in general Congress assembled. And what do they appeal to for this? We are appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. In other words, they see what they're doing as being a practical application of what God himself wants, God himself who gave them these rights, God himself, who is calling them to separate so that these rights can be fully lived out by all the people under their jurisdiction. And they close by saying, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Or as Ben Franklin said, gentlemen, we must hang together or we will surely hang separately. The next step after the Declaration were the Articles of Confederation, which was kind of the first attempt to move in a constitutional direction. 
and it's described as the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union between the states of, and then it lists the 13 colonies. And it begins with, whereas it has pleased the great governor of the world to incline the hearts of the legislatures we respectfully represent in Congress to approve and to authorize us to ratify the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. In other words, we are now taking these 13 colonies and we are creating from them one confederated union. Why? Because it has so pleased the great governor of the world. We're doing this because we believe and our legislatures in our home colonies believe that God himself has intended this. Who? The great governor of the world has intended this. So they go on and then describe what does it mean to become this confederation. The Articles of Confederation, of course, were not sufficient to govern the country, which is why a subsequent constitutional convention drafted the Constitution itself, which is this a most kind of amazing document that considering how different society is now from them is still an amazing gift. But if you look at all of the foundations, you look at all 13 colonies and the 13 colonies governments, and if they weren't explicitly Christian, they were at least tacitly so, and they come together and they declare the Declaration of Independence and they do it trusting in God and recognizing that God is behind our rights, God is behind everything that we do. And then you move on from there to this confederation that has pleased the great governor of the world to do this. If you read the quotes of the founding fathers, which you find in a variety of amazing places, you know, but what George Washington and what all the founding fathers said about the absolutely indispensable need for a country, if it's going to function, has to be religious. And in a certain sense, you could say that's one of the issues that our more recent administrations really kind of haven't grasped. You know, there's been kind of an approach, it seems like, in American foreign policy, where the idea is you just take out the bad guy, you facilitate elections, and a Western-style democracy will immediately spring into being. The problem with that is that the democracy sprang into being here precisely because it was a Christian country, because self-sacrifice and the common good were fundamental positions. The dignity of the human person was a fundamental position. If the population is not in that place, then what's going to happen when you try to spring up a democracy? You're going to have chaos and disorder, which has happened any time you've tried it in any context in which the people have been formed in some other system. The Soviet Union falls. There's nothing of the Orthodox Church left. There hasn't been Christian formation for a long time. What happens when the Soviet Union falls and they now have free elections? The mob takes over Russia. Is Russia functioning today as a free democracy? Not according to most folks. When we tried to do it in different states that were under our jurisdiction or under our control, you know, did it ever work if people hadn't been formed as Christians, understanding the fundamental values that make Christianity work? No. That's why the impossibility of coming up with a good exit strategy when you're dealing with places What are you going to do? You take out the bad guy, what are you going to replace it with? If you want to understand why the founding fathers, for example, were so adamant about the need for education. Because people need to be educated about the values of what is right and true because only a well-educated population can understand how to make prudential decisions to constitute good government. It just doesn't work anywhere. Democracy is a really good idea. But as was pointed out, it was was interesting. One of the arguments that were used when the Constitution was first presented, 
the Constitution would become the law of the land after at least nine of the 13 states had formally ratified it. And for the states to ratify it, their populations needed to vote on whether or not you wanted to do it. And so in order to facilitate the ratification of the Constitution, a group of the creators published what were called the Federalist Papers, which were just an amazing set of documents. And they were basically put into all the local newspapers. If you read them, you get a really unfortunately clear sense of the catastrophic dumbing down of our society. Because these articles, which were written to be published on the front page of New York Times, Washington Post, you know, Boston Globe, whatever their predecessors were, read today like graduate school political science seminars. And the fact that they were read with the intent that the common folks were reading them and understanding them and being persuaded by them, you couldn't get anybody to publish them today because nobody could read them. And when we're graduating our kids from high school at the hoped-for goal of a sixth-grade reading level, you know, these same papers that were publishing the Federalist Papers also published Latin lessons as a service to our readers. Okay, So (laughs) there's so much we need to do. But when you read the Federalist Papers, you have this wonderful description of why this is necessary, how this is a protection, how the absolute fundamental dependence that we have on God himself and that God is the source of the rights. When people say abortion has to be okay because it's legal, that's just the flat-out application of the Nuremberg Principle. It's legal, therefore it's moral. Didn't work. Didn't keep those guys from being convicted. Is fundamentally unjust. Unjust laws are not binding. And how do we know that they're unjust? Because they conflict with a higher law that has to have dominance. The eternal law of God, known by reason as natural law, known by revelation as divine law. And so we are responsible for making sure that those who we elect understand that. Understand not only the principle, but the application of the principles. That rights are given by God to the people. And that the Constitution itself which had this wonderful gift of being built in so that when you recognize that there is a fundamental place where the law does not recognize something and it is unjust that it not be recognized and so it must be modified. Where's the first place that it's modified? In the first couple places, recognizing that women have the right to full status, that women have the right to vote, that women have the right to full citizenship in the country. Or that members of minority races have the right to full status and a full vote, regardless of the previous conditions of servitude. You know, we modified the Constitution in significant ways to say, okay, it is clearly unjust to not let these two groups of the population fully participate in our system. So we modified it so that they could. It is an amazing thing that our Constitution is capable of. And now, of course, the next step that we have to hope for is that eventually it would be so modified to recognize that from the moment of conception, the unborn child is a human person and therefore should exercise the same kind of rights that everyone else does, which, again, was the position of the country prior to Roe. Prior to Roe, every state had on the books that you can't abort after a certain time particularly. And many of them said, okay, quickening, as soon as a kid starts to move, You can't abort. But the AMA issued a statement that that was crazy. What do you think it is before it starts to move? It's still a baby. It's still a human being. It's still a little he or she before they start to move. The AMA was arguing that the only logical place to place the definition of life was a conception. 
I think that's actually included in Roe. If you've never read the Roe decision, there's a wonderful treatment in the decision itself of the history of how abortion is approached from like the ancients all the way up to the point where the judges said, okay, everybody has moved in the direction of saying with the greater medical knowledge we have, it's clearly a human being. It's clear from the moment of conception. The states all agree with this. Philosophy, theology all agrees with this. And then the judges conclude we're not doctors, we're not philosophers, we're not theologians, kill a baby. It is the most catastrophically irrational decision ever made in the history. They give you this beautiful foundation for why abortion is wrong, and then they ignore it. But on one sense, you could say, did the founding fathers clearly intend the unborn child to be considered a human being under the federal laws of the country? Well, probably not. So then the only way that that's going to happen in a way that actually protects the kids is to pass a constitutional amendment. Now, the Constitution says that whatever is not specifically given to the federal government for its powers is then reserved to the states or to the people. So it was fine for the states to then rule on that because essentially the Constitution does not address abortion. And so in a certain way, the courts should not have addressed abortion because the Constitution doesn't address abortion. So how did they address it? By manufacturing this right of privacy which somehow becomes a condition under which it's a violation of women's right to privacy if you can't have an abortion, and it just gets crazier and crazier from that point on. But if you start with, what did the government actually teach? What do we understand about how law is supposed to function? You can see just how gravely illegal Roe and every subsequent decision has been. How is a violation of the rights of the states? But we need to begin from the perspective of saying, okay, what's our foundation? You know, when the Vatican documents were written, when John the 23rd called the council, he said, one of the most crucial things that we need to do is get back to our roots. Because if you want to understand who you are as a people, you go back to where you started. What was the purpose? What was the reason? What were you trying to do? His ressourcement, you know, that kind of the French phrase that dictated a lot of the response of the council, return to the sources. And so the Holy Father invited the council fathers, go back to the fathers of the church, go back to the scripture. What did we do? How did we believe? How did we do that? And then look at everything that we're doing, everything that we're believing, and kind of evaluate it in the context of, are we still being perfectly faithful to our initial missions? And everything that's not faithful to that needs to change. Well, in a certain sense, you have to do exactly the same thing when you're making decisions about the country itself, because the same principle applies. Where did we start? What was the intent? If we use this God-founding vocabulary over and over and over again in all of these documents, is it appropriate at some point to then move to a position where prayer is forbidden, God cannot be mentioned? How is that even remotely consistent with the intent of the founding fathers, with the intent of those who founded the original colonies? It's not. It's clearly not. But if we're going to make the argument that we need to become really familiar, we need to really understand, what did they say? What did the Mayflower Compact say? You're not ambiguous. It's not just for God believers. It was for the furtherance of the Christian faith. If colony after colony believed that, then it is certainly not inconsistent with our foundation to defend Christianity today and to say, no, here's what the government is supposed to do. When the government says, we're going to abridge the rights of Catholics to be Catholic, that is a catastrophic attack on the very nature of what this democracy was founded to do. So it's our responsibility then to do what we can do, do what we need to do so that all of the people of God can worship him, 
with the gift that they've been given, the gift of freedom and freedom of religion, not being reduced, as the current administration is trying to do, to freedom of worship. To simply say, whatever you do in that building is okay, but how you live out here is under our jurisdiction. That's the difference between freedom of worship and freedom of religion. Freedom of religion is now supposed to stop at the walls of your church. That's clearly not the intent of the founding documents. They would never have construed it that way. If you'd have walked into any one of the colonies and said, you know, what you do in church is okay, but you can't live that way out here, you'd have been shown the borders of the colony, hopefully, (laughs) if you didn't end up in a dunking stool or one of their other little kind of civil alteration vehicles, you know. (laughs) And if we just kind of lay down and play dead while they take it away from us, then we're simply responsible. So let us plead with Jesus that we would come to know and to love this more. You know, in the 70s, everybody was kind of antinomian. I went through my antinomian phase. You know, I mean, (laughs) I've repented of this so many times. But when I was becoming Catholic, I'd go to Mass every day, but I wouldn't go on Sunday because you had to. (laughs) Okay, is that antinomian 1970s idiocy? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yes, and, and we hope that we've mostly managed to eradicate most of the purgatory time that that absolute stupidity resulted in. You know. But unfortunately, you know, kind of sectors of our society kind of got locked in that 1960s antinomianism, and they're still there. They're still there. Now you go to Mass on Sunday. Yeah, three times today. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've actually compensated by now. You know, so. But let us plead with Jesus to look into our own hearts and see... Where is it in our hearts that maybe we picked up some of this cultural contamination against the absolute authority of the divine lawmaker to establish how his people are supposed to live? And if we can identify where that is and to bring it to him and repent for it so that we are free to simply live as followers of Jesus. That's the worldview that we are meant to walk in. The worldview that first and foremost acknowledges that the eternal law is the most essential because it's how God runs the universe. And that the gift of that that we can know by reason and that the gift of that that we know by revelation, that is what dictates our response. And that way down the list are the human laws which don't revoke the laws above, but are meant to purely reflect them. And if in our country the human laws are no longer reflecting the divine law, the natural law, the eternal law, then things have to be changed. Which means we have the responsibility to convince our fellow Americans the truth of where we stand. Because the way we change law is by vote. And people change their votes when hopefully they're touched by valid arguments, compassionately and clearly presented, so that hearts are changed. We have to believe that truth can continue to change hearts. It's not easy, but it really puts the burden on us to make sure we're living in such a way as to show people this actually works. A relationship with Jesus actually works because everybody at this point is a pragmatist. Show me what works or don't show me. And if we, by the love and the joy and the peace in our lives, if we have a capacity to bring that joy and hope to the world because they can see it in us, we won't have to tell them why it works. They'll come to us and say, how are you doing this? And then we can say it's because the King of Kings reigns in my heart.
The King of Kings fills me with his spirit. The King of Kings feeds me with his body and blood. And he can change your life too. And as soon as he has, vote to protect the kids, etc. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the eternal law that governs the universe. We thank you for the wondrous gift of the triune God that you have chosen to reveal yourselves to us. We thank you for the gift of reason by which we can know. We thank you especially for the gift of revelation by which you make clear who we are and how we're supposed to live. Give us the wisdom and courage we need to apply that so that our human lives faithfully reflect who we are and how we're to live because they faithfully reflect what you yourself have shown us through reason and through revelation. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I ask you to continue to give them all the courage and wisdom they need to pursue their own formation, to search their own hearts, to make sure that they are living and thinking according to your approach. And because you love them so much, we commend them to the care of the great mother of God, the protection of St. Michael, the intercession of St. Joseph. May your peace and blessing rest on them and all the people they love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just to close out this portion of our program, and for Father Ed to make one more point, here is a portion of a question from his Q&A that followed his talk. Secondly, when the Declaration of Independence was created, it was created by a lot of men who were deists and not Christians. Popular myth. I beg your pardon? Popular myth. Popular men, yes, but they still no, were... No, popular myth. Popular myth, yeah. well... If you study the theology of the guys, there was some ambiguity with Jefferson back and forth, but to yeah. say that they were all deists is no, just No, I didn't, not, I didn't, yeah. all right. Or I even most of them. Deist. Okay. We'll conclude this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ with an abbreviated talk by EWTN's Father John Trujillo right after this break. This is Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. Celebrating Vatican II in the Modern Era was the title of the 2012 Detroit Call the Holiness Conference. Longtime EWTN program host Father John Trujillo spoke on responsible citizenship. His talk also addressed the attacks on our religious freedoms and on our responsibilities as Catholics to vote for acceptable candidates. To finish our time together, here is his abbreviated talk. The topic that I want to discuss with you today, authentic, responsible citizenship, I think is more urgent than ever before. When we look at this whole idea of citizenship, we want to look at these two documents, one from the American bishops, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, that came out in 2011. And when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, as the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, he issued Worthiness to Receive Holy Communion. And that was a, a letter that was specifically sent to the United States, to the bishops. In Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 74, we're told, it is clear, therefore, that the political community and public authority are founded on human nature and hence belong to the order designed by God, even though the choice of a political regime and appointment of rulers are left to the free will of citizens. It follows that political authority, both in the community as such and in the representative bodies of the state, must always be exercised with the limits of the moral order and directed toward the common good, with a dynamic concept of that good, 
according to the juridical order legitimately established or due to be established. Here's a key paragraph in Gaudimit says on our topic today. All citizens, therefore, should be mindful of the right and also of the duty, emphasize that word duty, to use their free vote to further the common good. It's not just a right that we enjoy, that we have the right to vote. It's a duty to vote. And you must vote with a well-formed conscience. God gives us many rights, but also with those rights come obligations. And each one of the rights that we enjoy, the rights coincide with the obligations. And so when you and I engage in political life, this involves who I register, what party I choose, why did I select that party? Not just because mom and dad were card-carrying members, not because grandma and grandpa, but I make a conscious, deliberate choice. I want to belong to this party. And if this party is going in the wrong direction, then you've got to make a choice. Do I stay and try to redirect it? Do I try to be a voice that says, hey, we're going in the wrong direction? But I can't just be a bystander and sit back and say, well, I'm not in charge. Yes, you are. You have a vote. And you might say, I'm only one vote. Well, there is a book out called Almost History. It's about these little vignettes of things that happen. One interesting story is about, it was an amendment to the Constitution for women to be able to vote in the United States. Of course, it had to go to all the states. And the final vote was pending, and it looked as if it was not going to pass. And the night before, a guy who was all ready to cast his vote, because it was down to this one state, if they had enough votes, it would pass. If not, it would die. He goes through his mail the night before, opens it up, and it says, Dear Johnny, be a good boy. Pass the bill. Your mother. (laughs) He closed the letter. Next day, he changed his vote. It passed. Her one expression of her opinion influenced an outcome. And we've seen already how close some of the elections have come. So you can't say, I have nothing to do with it. Because you and I have a moral obligation not only to vote, but we have to answer to Almighty God for how we vote. No matter who wins, our conscience is clear. But if we don't vote, we're part of the problem. My vote does count. And even if I'm not on the winning side, I have to choose who would be the most appropriate person who's going to serve the common good. In the document from the American Bishops of Faithful Citizenship, paragraph 13 tells us, in the Catholic tradition, responsible citizenship is a virtue, and participation in the political life is a moral obligation. This obligation is rooted in our baptismal commitment to follow Jesus Christ and to bear Christian witness in all we do. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church reminds us, quote, It is necessary that all participate, each according to his position and role, in promoting the common good. This obligation is inherent in the dignity of the human person. As far as possible, citizens should take an active part in public life. That's from the Catechism, paragraphs 1913 to 1915. We see the same theme being reiterated. It's an obligation to vote. But not just that I vote, that I physically cast the ballot. But I must use prudence, that virtue, that first of the cardinal virtues, that I choose wisely, that I go in there with what we call a well-formed conscience. All too often people say, well, let your conscience be your guide. That's true to the extent it must be a well-formed conscience. If I have a badly formed conscience or if I have a lax conscience, then it's going to be a bad choice. In paragraph 17 of that same document from the bishops, The church equips its members to address political and social questions by helping them to develop a well-formed conscience. 
Catholics have a serious and lifelong obligation to form their consciences in accord with human reason and the teaching of the church. Conscience is not something that allows us to justify doing whatever we want, nor is it a mere feeling about what we should or should not do. Rather, conscience is the voice of God resounding in the human heart, revealing the truth to us, calling us to do what is good while shunning what is evil. Conscience always requires serious attempts to make sound moral judgments based on the truths of our faith. Your conscience is not a little voice. It's not little Fred Flintstone with wings on your shoulder saying, go ahead, do this, okay? And then you got a little Fred Flintstone on the other side with a pitchfork. No, 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 do this. If you're hearing little voices, we have a room for you <laughs> with mattresses and wrap you up in wet sheets, okay? Your conscience is not a voice. Your conscience, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, is practical judgment. You see a moral situation and you judge, is this morally right? Is it morally good? Then I should do it. Is it morally evil? Then I should avoid it. That's the first moral principle. Do good, avoid evil. Unfortunately, in the 70s and 80s, we had some fuzzy morality, and Father Zulsdorf and some of my colleagues can attest, when we were in the seminary, we heard some of it. I had one professor tell us, well, do as much good as possible and as little evil as necessary. Listen, no, no. It's do good, avoid evil, period. And so I must judge a moral situation. I must judge the position of this candidate, of this party. What are they going to do? What are they not going to do? And then I say, okay, if they're going to do good, then I need to choose them. If they're going to do evil, I have to choose not to support them. Paragraph 17, the formation of conscience includes several elements. First, there's a desire to embrace goodness and truth. For Catholics, this begins with a willingness and openness to seek the truth and what is right by studying sacred scripture and the teaching of the church as contained in the catechism of the Catholic Church. It is also important to examine the facts and background information about various choices. Finally, prayerful reflection is an essential to discern the will of God. Catholics must also understand if they fail to form their consciences, they can make erroneous judgments. Sacred scripture and the teaching of the church, the Bible and the catechism. We have to read those and then allow them to help form our conscience. You're not going to open up the catechism that's going to say to you, oh yeah, vote for this guy, vote for that. No. The catechism, the teaching of the magisterium, the Bible, they give us principles which you and I apply and then say, okay, here's this person, here's his or her positions, here's what they support, here's what they don't support, and then with my well-formed conscience, I say, okay, if this is good, I can support it. If it's evil, I must oppose it. The only way for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. You don't have to be Albert Einstein to figure that one out. Paragraph 20, the church's teaching is clear that a good end does not justify an immoral means. As we all seek to advance the common good by defending the inviolable sanctity of human life from the moment of conception until natural death, by defending marriage, by feeding the hungry and housing the homeless, by welcoming the immigrant and protecting the environment, it's important to recognize that not all possible courses of action are morally acceptable. Even though there may be a particular good that we want to achieve, the ends doesn't justify the means. You must always use moral means. If it's immoral means, an immoral way of obtaining it, you can't do it. I can't murder one person to save a thousand. I can't murder one person to save a million. I can never do evil to achieve good. Evil is never necessary. Now, if someone else does the evil, let's say a terrorist has got a gun to your head and says, 
I want you to go and blow up that school bus. You say, no. Well, I'm going to shoot you. Well, then let him shoot you. You'll die a martyr. You'll go right to heaven. I can't do evil, ever. Paragraph 22, there are some things we must never do as individuals or as a society because they're always incompatible with love of God and neighbor. Such actions are so deeply flawed, they always are opposed to the authentic good of persons. These are called, quote, intrinsically evil actions. They must always be rejected and opposed and must never be supported or condoned. Prime example, and this is from the document itself, is the intentional take of innocent human life as an abortion and euthanasia. In our nation, abortion and euthanasia have become preeminent threats to human dignity because they directly attack life itself, which is the most fundamental human good and the condition for all others. Here's a very important paragraph. It is a mistake with grave moral consequences to treat the destruction of innocent human life merely as a matter of individual choice. A legal system that violates the basic right to life on the grounds of choice is fundamentally flawed. Yes, we have free will. Yes, we have freedom of choice. But I don't get to choose what's good or what's evil. I choose to do good or do evil, and then I'm held accountable for that decision. Every time we sin, we put our will over God's will. We are making ourselves into little deities. Number 23, similarly, direct threats to the sanity and dignity of human life, such as human cloning and destructive research on human embryos, are also intrinsically evil. They must always be opposed. Other direct assaults on human life, violations of human dignity, such as genocide, torture, racism, and targeting of non-combatants in acts of terror or war can never be justified. Life is the fundamental, foundational right you don't have to be a rocket scientist. If you're not allowed to live, then you have no other rights. Doesn't mean that there aren't other rights. Doesn't mean that there aren't other issues. It doesn't mean that we're a one-issue voting block. But it means that we do have a priority, a hierarchy. Paragraph 26, Pope John Paul II explained the importance of being true to fundamental church teachings. Above all, the common outcry which is justly made on behalf of human rights. For example, the right to health at home to work, to family, to culture is false and illusory if the right to life, the most basic and fundamental right and the condition of all other personal rights is not defended with maximum determination. Paragraph 28, temptations in public life can distort the church's defense of human life and dignity. For example, a moral equivalence that makes no ethical distinctions between different grades of issues involving human life and dignity. The direct and intentional destruction of innocent human life from the moment of conception until natural death is always wrong and is not just one issue among many. It must always be opposed. Again, we have people that sometimes will say, what about the seamless garment argument? People will use that and say that means everything is of equal value. It's not. It means that all the issues are connected. My right to ordinary care, I'm entitled to have nourishment, food, Hydration, water. I'm entitled to have clean clothing or clean sheets. Having someone help me take care of my, doing my sanitary business. I'm entitled to that. Why? Because I have the right to life. I'm made in the image and likeness of God. So because of that right, the other rights flow from that. In paragraph 30, they quote from uh, the doctrine of the faith. It must be noted that a well-formed Christian conscience does not permit one to vote for political program or an individual law which contradicts the fundamental contents of faith and morals. 
Again, you would think that's a no-brainer. But there are a lot of people who think, well, as long as I don't personally agree with their position on these issues, then I can vote for them. Because, you know, I like their smile, okay? Or, you know, they look presidential. That is not a moral argument. And guess what? That won't float on Judgment Day. Mm -mm. Now, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 2270, human life must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception. From the first moment of his existence, a human being must be recognized as having the rights of a person, among which the inviolable right of every innocent being to life. Paragraph 2271. Since the first century, the church has affirmed the moral evil of every procured abortion. This teaching has not changed and remains unchangeable. Now, I'm not going to mention any names, but I recently heard a few politicians try to tell us, oh, this came up in the Middle Ages. This wasn't settled until recently. Abortion has always, always, always been condemned. Anyone else tells you otherwise, well, they might as well tell you 2 plus 2 equals 5. 2272. Formal cooperation in abortion constitutes a grave offense. The church attaches the canonical penalty of excommunication to this crime against human life. That's how serious it is. 2274. Since it must be treated from conception as a person, the embryo must be defended in its integrity, cared for, and healed as far as possible like any other human being. The embryo is a human being. As soon as conception takes place, as soon as the egg is fertilized by the sperm, you know what happens? There's a unique, distinct DNA that's distinctly different from mom and dad. Up to that point, the egg's DNA, that's mom. And the sperm, that's dad. But once those two come together and there's fertilization and conception takes place, guess what? The DNA is human. It's not a chicken. It's not a kitty. It's not a pooch. It's human. And guess what? It's a distinctly unique DNA. That happens. We know this. But they say, well, it's got to be implanted. Whether the embryo is stuck in the fallopian tube, whether it's in the womb or outside the womb, it's still human. Biologically, chemically, metaphysically, spiritually, it's human. It's only legally that it has changed. Well, they did the same thing prior to the Constitution being changed, that if you were African-American, you weren't a person. The choice of Supreme Court justice is another factor to consider, since whoever is elected president makes this decision, and the persons he or she nominates will have a direct impact on life and liberty issues. So obviously there's other things involved in some of our candidates. We have a couple possible vacancies coming up on the Supreme Court, and guess what? Here's where Roe v. Wade may be revisited. That's something I need to consider too. Not only where does this person stand on the issue of abortion, but who is he or she most likely to put on the bench or promote? Because it may go by one vote this time that it will be overturned. That's how it worked with women's right to vote. That's how it worked with slavery. It just took one vote. The terminology we use is six vital issues. The first and foremost is the right to life. The next one is religious liberty. Religious liberty and freedom of religion. It's not just freedom of worship. You had freedom of worship in the USSR. Freedom of religion, religion is a public as well as private enterprise. Freedom of religion means that as a church, I can say something as a clergyman, not tell you who to vote for, but I'm allowed to tell you the moral principles to help guide you vote. That's my constitutional right, and it's your right to hear it because of the right of freedom of religion. The government cannot say to me, no, you're not allowed to tell your people moral principles, or you can only tell them things on Sunday. No, it's a freedom of religion. Plus, saying to institutions, 
Catholic schools, Catholic hospitals, Catholic businesses like EWTN. EWTN falls under the jurisdiction of the HHS. And legally, they are bound, according to the law, as it's stated, to supply contraceptives, abortifacients, sterilization procedures to their employees or to make sure their insurance covers it. EWTN. The next one is the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is the building block of the family. The family is the building block of society. We have a right to private property. Some people are trying to tell us that as Christians, you must be willing to give all you own to the poor. Jesus mentioned that to one fellow in the gospel because he was attached to all his goods. There's also a right to access to goods. Not only do you have a right to own things, but you have to use them properly. You have a right to the access of those things which are necessary, particularly food, clothing, shelter, education, employment, and medical care. Access doesn't mean that you're entitled just to have them on a silver platter. Access means you must be able to obtain them, meaning that you should be able to get a job for a decent wage, you do a decent work for that wage, and then you could obtain the things you need so that the food you need, the clothes you need, the education you need, you could obtain reasonably, which also means unsustainable debt, whether it's you're in hawk up to your eyeballs, that's as bad as the country being trillions and trillions in debt. In addition to access to goods, we have finally the issue of war. There is a just war doctrine. They teach it in the military academy. We are allowed to wage war, but there's two very important principles. Going to war and the waging of war. Use ad bellum is going to war. It must be the last resort. There must be a reasonable hope of success. I must have exhausted other possibilities. This must be an unjust aggressor, okay? Somebody's life must be in danger. It can't just be because I want a particular thing that they own. But then actually in war, you must not target non-combatants. We've heard that mentioned previously. That means not civilians, because civilians can be carrying rocket launchers, okay? Non-combatants are people with no weapons. They are exempt. I cannot target them. You must obey the natural moral law. I want to thank you for your attention. I think that's it, Father. On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we heard talks by Father Ed Freedy and Father John Trujillo. Both talks address the government's attacks on our religious freedoms and on our voting in the upcoming U.S. elections. Our talks for Putting on the Mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we've recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks are recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions, and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity and comprehension. A license has been granted by the speakers for this use. A CD of this program is available, order program number 447. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506, 734-930-4506, or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener-supported. If you like what is offered here, we ask you to support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.